Yeah, Canada. We made a contribution. <laughs> Huzzah. We're also, like, rapidly going to war with Saudi Arabia, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, I need to look that up. What the hell? <laughs> don't. Just don't. It's upsetting. <laughs> don't look at it. Don't stare into the void. I wanted to live an exciting life when I was a kid, but I didn't realize that, like, living through the last gasps of civilized society was what I had in store. See, I have <laughs> pretty good relations with, like, the only Saudi Arabian guy I know. Omar, how could you? <laughs> God damn. I thought we were friends. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Fatties, welcome back to another episode of Fraud, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. Are we are we insulting the audience? I don't even what. Oh my it, god! It was, it was pointed out to me by our artist Ash Hulovich that I we should really give our listeners their own unique fandom name, like something really cute. And so I'm I'm just trying some things out. I think I vote for literally anything that's not that. <laughs> Uggos. <laughs> oh no 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 other direction <laughs> don't don't go that way i think it's cute it's a little bit of body positivity and that i'm positive most of our listeners have bodies i feel like the only thing could be worse is if we just started calling them like dedicated members of the third reich <laughs> that's probably the only name more heinous than what you've suggested i would firmly agree that it is better to be fat than to be a nazi Grand dragons. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. I'm. I'm. I was so startled. I didn't even introduce myself. Uh, I'm Janelle. Hi, Janelle. And I'm. Yeah. That's. That's a lot. And I've been sitting I'm, on that one for a while. Yeah, that was. You just sprung that one on me. Um. And it's. It's not a good time to be springing stuff on me. It's about. 9,008 degrees here in New York City, mm. and, you know, approximately 109% humidity. So yeah. basically, the air is, like, trying to breathe in a warm bathtub. <laughs> if you, it's like, oh, Not it's above like the water, not the steam. No, 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 below. The bathtub, below like the waterline. breathe bath water, that's what... <laughs> And, I mean, this really can't be said enough. New York smells like hot garbage all of the time. All of the time. So you're trying to breathe in used warm bath water that smells like vegetables. (laughs) It's like like third-hand bath water. (laughs) It's a unique form of misery. And there's absolutely no good way to avoid it because, like, yes, the subways are air-conditioned, but the problem is that the subway cars (laughs) vent all of the heat into the subway tunnels, and this is my transit experience. And the alternative is just to walk. And Mm. the sidewalks are so hot that my poor little Bianca has a burn on her paw. Oh, sweetheart. I know. I think I once compared this to being, like, in a camp, like, like, burying, like, a potato in a campfire. You're getting cooked from every direction. (laughs) Because, like, dark tarmac reflects heat. It absorbs it, and then it, like, it radiates it out. It's not good. It does. There's an effect in New York City. Um, 
basically during the day all of the concrete and buildings absorb heat and then as soon as the sun goes down they radiate it back out again mm. so new york literally never gets any colder until the seasons change like nighttime <laughs> will not help you even the end of the sun will not will not keep will not bring you relief only the heat death of the universe itself will give us the sweet relief we crave. Yeah, uh, it was equally, like, I don't know if it's equally hot in Vancouver, but it's very hot and very humid. I've been harassing my roommate by just, like, hanging around in my underpants for weeks now. <laughs> and I, I recently um, escaped further inland to... Uh, just get some relief from the humidity and the constant frizzling of my hair. Like, my my scalp has taken on a sentience, a life of its own. It has its own friends separate from me. No. <laughs> like, I sometimes find calls on my phone that are just my hair chatting with its buddies. <laughs> it's, so I'm, this is basically a rambling way of saying, I'm in Edmonton at the moment. Hi. <laughs> back, back in our old stomping grounds. Also, I assume your roommate is just kind of tired of monitoring your back moles for cancer, so this is a welcome break. <laughs> it's just, I I am a pasty human being. I'm very pale. Like, you could use my stomach as an impromptu searchlight with, with like, sufficient reflection. You could land an airplane with it. Yeah, like, if, if, you, if you were in an emergency and the lighthouse lost power, I could <laughs> keep... You're going to stand sharp- on the... Sh- Stand on the, the shore. shores of Halifax. On the shores of Halifax, and keep keep the fishermen from harm. Bring our boys home. Oh yeah, it's like safely you know the miracle. The it's like the miracle on the Hudson, except instead of you know safely landing an airplane in the Hudson River, you just slowly rotate on the rocks of Peggy's Cove. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make a beautiful movie. <laughs> well, Where's my and- Oscar? Speaking of things that made beautiful movies, except no, Mm, I mean, this didn't, but I needed a segue, and I I saw an opportunity and I took it. We're talking, this week, we are talking about the Bakeland family. Specifically, Mm. we are talking about the murder of Barbara Bakeland and the subsequent events involving her son, Tony. Which makes this the second reference to the Bakelite fortune on this podcast. (laughs) When did we talk about the Bakelite fortune? Uh, well, we talked about Bacolite in a previous episode about Han van Mechelen, the famous art forger, who used Bacolite in his um, in his paintings, in his fake, in his forgeries. So, oh, fun! We've officially referenced Bacolite twice. <laughs> it's fun that you know that because I don't remember. I treat our podcast like I treated like my diploma exams in high school, where you just sort of study, 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 flush. <laughs> the moment, the moment that. That I say, like, fat, French, and fabulous at the end of an episode. Everything's gone. Just an instant case of retrograde amnesia. All the horrible things that I have said are gone. And so when people are listening to the podcast, people will, like, message us quotes from the podcast all the time (laughs) out of context. I don't know why that's the thing that are... I hesitate to even call them fans. I guess audio captives. (laughs) Um... The things that they do. I'm not calling them fatties. I refuse. (laughs) They Our like special just, little fatties. They like to message us quotes from the podcast with no context whatsoever, and I'm like, why would you send me that? And like, you said it. I'm it's like, reprehensible. Oh no, the things I say look so much worse written down word for word. Oh yeah, <laughs> see that happens to me all the time too, and I'm initially so confused that people are like, wait, wait, they're like, no, no, like you said this in the last episode. I'm like, oh, did I? Oh yeah, I remember that now. It's all coming back, just a wash of shame and misery. 
People um, just text me and they're like, you would throw a human child down a storm drain. And I'm like, what? And they're like, you said that. You said that into a microphone and you pressed record. I'm like... <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. I just got a job with the government. <laughs> That's alarming. And, uh, wow. The, the background checks can't be that thorough. Because, <laughs> uh... I, this is my real name. <laughs> we, these are I'm just both of our real in names. real life. <laughs> I'm Janelle Como, for better mm. or for worse. <laughs> yeah. I hope the other Jessica don't mind, because wow. <laughs> Ruining it for all of us. Yeah, I actually have an eidetic memory. Like, I remember basically everything said in front of me. But, like, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily have it in mind, like, all the time. <laughs> As you shouldn't. I don't spend a lot of time just remembering that you once said toddler cock rings to me. Yeah, that. But, like, you did, in fact, say it, and I do, in fact, recall. <laughs> God damn it. It will never be erased from my mind. Awesome. Well, apparently this internet. is the... Oh, that's, that's the part that gets me. I'm... My political dreams are over. Elizabeth Warren may be running for president, but I am not. <laughs> no. For <laughs> many reasons. <laughs> because I'm a woman. Mm. <laughs> and you're a Canadian. <laughs> Don't hold me back from my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing well enough on your own. That's great. Um, so the case we're talking about today is a case from the 1970s that was extremely well publicized in its day, but it kind of seems to have faded from public consciousness. I couldn't really find any reliable sources online, and I had to track down a very obscure, out-of-print true crime book called Savage Grace for all the research on this episode, so you're welcome. Mm. I ordered a real book from the internet and read its real pages and made real notes. She, she, she bought a physical book that she had to touch with her hands. Like some <gasps> kind of savage. Peasant. Um, <laughs> peon. It's not even available in ebook. Like you literally have to go find an out of print true crime book from the 1970s to to learn about this case in any reliable way because the rest of it is just hearsay on clickbait sites. Yeah. Despite the fact there was an entire movie. There was. Savage Grace was made into a movie and the only thing that anyone on Tumblr seems to care about is that Eddie Redmayne had a gay sex scene. It's <laughs> all they needed. All, that's the only it, thing. It's tells you everything you need to know about Tumblr. Tumblr will just be like, here's some gifts of Eddie Redmayne doing gay things. And I'm like, that is a clip of a man having sex with his own mother and it her boyfriend <laughs> at the same time. And you're just like, no, no, get her out of the picture. Just, just the butts. Eddie Redmayne. Wink. Which is, which is nuts, because this case is goddamn insane. It's bonkers. Um, we'll, we'll get to the sex scene, and we'll get to the incest. But it's hard to know even where to dive into this steaming pile of insanity. But I'm just going to have to start with the background of the victim, Barbara Bakeland, and go from there. But again, keep in mind, as we're going through the story, one, I swear to God all of this is true, or at least as true as anything printed in a 1970s true crime novel that won some sort of award can be. Mm. And, like, two, literally everybody in this story is insane. They're I'm not nuts. making... this. None they of this is fake. legally crazy. So the format of um, Savage Grace is a little bit different than any other true crime novel I've ever read. It's not... The authors did interviews with basically everybody who had ever met these people. Mm. Just hundreds and hundreds of people. And the chapters are just different they clips of different Diane people. They them. They did. They did. And every chapter is just... One paragraph will be one... Per they're divided the chapters up by topic. Mm. 
and it just has quotes from various different people about whatever topic they're discussing. Oh, boy. So most of the facts in this book have been confirmed by multiple sources. I couldn't research this case anymore because I was going to physically lose my mind. My notes for an average episode are about five pages, and this one's 20, so we're really gonna boogie. Brace yourself. Brace yourselves. So, Barbara was born Barbara Daly in 1922 to an ordinary middle-class family in Boston. And then, when she was 10 years old, her father went out to the garage, turned on the car, and committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. Wow. Good start. So, kind of a rough start. Um, Apparently, he made it look like an accident somehow. I guess he... Insurance will not pay out if you kill yourself, but insurance will pay out if you're just dumb enough to run a car in a closed garage. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a whole like not incentivizing suicide slash controlling liability costs thing. I guess they cover liability for stupid because um, mm. that's that he tried to make it look like he was he just fucked up, but he mm-hmm. he really did intentionally kill himself. So, after her father's death, Barbara and her mother moved to New York City to get a fresh start, and they ended up living at what was then called the Hotel Del Monaco on Park Avenue. And today, that building is a condominium building called Trump Park Avenue. It's a Trump hotel. Boo! Trump bought the hotel years ago and converted it to a residential building. Um, Also worth noting, for this episode, I physically went to Barbara's old house and just kind of looked at it. So, I, I went... I went so close to the edge of insanity, I could see over it. <laughs> you are literally stalking a dead woman. <laughs> she lives. She lived ago. just off the six. It was really convenient. We both lived <laughs> off the same subway line. You wow. know, me, me in the parts that's ankle deep in garbage, and her in the parts where people have doormen. Mm. <laughs> it's it's a small distance, but it's like it's small in terms of physical space, but vast in terms of class distance (laughs) she lived on 74th and lexington i just can go there and just look up at what will never be it's great you can just spectate Um, it's uh, manhattan's gonna be underwater in 50 years there's no point buying property um so barbara was consistently noted for being charming and full of personality and being super mega awesome foxy hot um mostly that last one um so she became a socialite in the new york city social scene and took up modeling contrasts with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. Apparently she was named one of the top ten hottest girls in New York. I've never found a source for who was actually compiling that. Mm. I don't know if that was a magazine's ranking or if that was just, like, designated Subway Hobo's ranking. I don't mm. know. This is just a random dude. Just, you know, Charlie who lives who lives off of Lexington, you know, in a bin. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, thinks, he thinks she's foxy. Every every neighborhood kind of has a Charlie, to be honest. <laughs> and they're all special in their own way. Yeah, mine is a meth dealer who lives in a van <laughs> on Madison Avenue under the a, bridge. Well, where else is a meth dealer supposed to live? We walk he's by on him. Madison he's, Avenue. He's basically he's basically made it. He's he sits on he sits under the bridge at Madison and 110th wow. in an RV. He sits on a dirty lawn chair outside of an RV every morning with his pit bull. <laughs> He, just Charlie the meth dealer, and he's that sounds like a Charlie to me, like an eighth class Charlie. One of six white people that live in this neighborhood. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I am two of the white people that live in this neighborhood. I'm enough white for two. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Just you, you and Charlie. So Barbara also had a variety of unspecified mental health issues from a young age. And throughout her life, she routinely saw psychiatrists. She was not fine 
at any point. That's gonna- how not fine she was is gonna become more and more apparent throughout this story, but she was not fine. So, Barbara was a determined social climber all her life, and she attended high society parties, and she dated a variety of rich, powerful men. That was kind of her- her thing. Her M.O. Yeah. Her real dream, though, was to make it in Hollywood, and she did manage to score an invitation to come to Hollywood and do a screen test with Dana Andrews, but it never really led to anything, and this kind of ended up being the high point of her film career, was a single screen test. Bit of a damp squib. Ooh, but for the rest of her life, she frequently introduced herself as Barbara of MGM, and claimed (laughs) that she was a movie executive who traveled the world- Oh, yeah, yeah, to travel- She claimed she was traveling the world- she claims she traveled the world to visit film sets on location when she actually just traveled the world because she was bored and she could. <laughs> um, she once traveled the country to look at a film set. I mean, she traveled all over the world throughout her lifetime, but again, that was just because when you have that much money, life is a meaningless slog. Yeah, she had <laughs> silly money. It's basically like when you turn cheats on in, on The Sims and like it loses all sense of challenge. She's basically it, Having money is basically no clipping through life. Yeah, I mean, I'd still trade my student loan to be able to live a life of leisure in the Italian Alps, but, you know, yeah. I have gl- to convince I'd, myself. <laughs> I, I'd gladly trade 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 anything in my life for, like, the um, the, the, the Konami code to uh, to existence that just allows me to walk through walls. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I want my student loans paid off. You want Danny Phantom powers. <laughs> the little things. <laughs> just the little things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Barbara's lies about being a movie executive were so pervasive, it actually was printed in news stories around the world wow. after her death. Yeah, it's it's bullshit. She never she's once rich. Why yet. would she lie? <laughs> because again, she's out of other things to do. Lord, <laughs> she's out of challenges. But while she was doing her little stint in Hollywood, she met another aspiring actress named Cornelia Bakeland, who introduced Barbara to her younger brother Brooks Bakeland. Who was dun, training dun, to become, dun. yeah. Uh, Brooks was training to become a pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force, so we snuck some Canadian content in there. We always manage. It's this Woo. is the last time Canada will be mentioned, but it was in there. Brooks Bakeland was the grandson of Leo Bakeland, the man who invented bakelite plastic in 1907, of which billiard balls are made. Many things are made, but. You should know that living in a world where everything is made out of a cheap, lightweight material like plastic is an incredibly recent phenomenon. So recent. So recent. I worked at a historical site for a year, uh, for a summer, and um, everything was just metal and sucked. Mmm. Rusty. History was heavy. Unreliable. There is no point having a suitcase if the suitcase itself is 60 pounds and holds five pounds of clothes <laughs> it's not yeah. an effective system that was that was most of history it was just like any given household appliance could be used to beat a man to death like <laughs> irons used to be insane heavy and you would just like put like and these be like just like an literal slab of iron with a handle which was also made of metal which is very safe i probably would have scalded scalded off my uh, my fingerprints like twice a week and you just put that on an oven and then you put it on your clothes and then you put it back on an oven and then you put it on your clothes very safe i probably would have died in a tenement fire like eight times you don't survive childhood in an earlier century that's not that doesn't happen for you literally (laughs) 
Literally, my mom bought me an iron with a safety feature where it stands up on little legs if you leave it flying down too long. (laughs) 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 And uh, she was correct in doing that. She was right. (laughs) Yeah, in an earlier era, you just go gently into that good night. (laughs) The first time you... And by gently, we mean in a ball of flames. (laughs) Yeah, the first time, you know, you decide to cuddle with a gas-powered engine. Just a massive grease fire. <laughs> no, you were you were meant to live in this century, and even then, only tentatively. <laughs> it's it's a temporary placement. We'll see how it we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Oh yeah, but it's it's kind of difficult to even summarize the impact that Backlight had on the world. Like this was the first real plastic. Everything before that was sort of made out of resin, which is not an easy material to work with. Yeah, it's a bit tricky. And, I mean, when Backlight first came out, it's it's a lot heavier, and it chips, and it's, it can't be melted and reshaped. Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of issues. It It sucks. It is electricity proof, though. Well, that's kind of fun. Handy. And easy clean. It's weird that you know that. And I bet if I asked, you could give me an exact list of surfaces that are easy to get blood off of, and I never <laughs> want to know where that information comes from. You're just gonna, I'm, you're, I'm just gonna put. I know it how to get yeah. blood stains out of a many, many materials. I'm sure you do, and we have a policy against self-incrimination. Yes, we do. But at the time, everything from toothbrushes to car parts to telephones and buttons all became made out of bacolite, which kind of made me stop to wonder, what were they making toothbrushes out of before that? Did you have what? a wooden toothbrush? Ivory? The, fetch the cast iron toothbrush. Yes, excellent. Ever, ever, your great-grandmother could bench press a cow because mm. she had to do a bicep curl to answer the phone. All of our <laughs> great-grandmothers could bicep, could bench press cows. Mine frequently did. I had to psych myself up to carry a six-pack of coke up the stairs today, so... (laughs) Different times. Little old ladies used to be ripped back in the 30s. They were. Um, They were just stacked. They had to be. Just a bunch of gilfs. Backlight itself is a much heavier plastic than anything that we're used to in the modern era. My laptop keys, if they were made out of backlight, I would need a small car to haul this thing around. But... At the time of Leo Becklin's death in 1944, more than 15,000 products made of backlight were in production. Um, Leo Bakeland himself was basically the embodiment of an eccentric genius. He was born in Flemish, Belgium. The name Bakeland is Flemish, that's why it's not pronounced the way that it looks. He was born to an illiterate cobbler. He apprenticed in his father's repair shop as a boy. This is the great-grandfather mm-hmm. of, um, of this, is, this is Brooks's grandfather. Um, he apprenticed in his father's shoe repair shop as a boy, and his mother was a maid to wealthy families, and once she kind of saw how the other side lived, she was determined that her own son would have the wealthy life and not the illiterate cobbler life, and she insisted that he- he, Yeah, fair. Um, it's very minor living better than your parents if your parents are an illiterate cobbler. That's, That's a reasonable goal. That is a low bar. You can trip over that one. Um... So she insisted that her son was going to study at university. And he did, but on his part, Leo Bakelin said that the most important discovery he made while at university was, quote, that the senior professor of chemistry had a very attractive daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Whom he ended up marrying, so that's Brooks' grandmother. (laughs) 
he graduated with his PhD in chemistry from the University of Ghent in Belgium. He he finished his PhD from Ghent, Belgium at the age of 21. Uh, as a young man, he visited New York City, where a professor at Columbia University convinced him to move to the United States, and he did, eventually settling in Yonkers, which is the worst part. Just the Just, name Yonkers is terrible. It's a terrible place. It I, sounds I can't like a imagine... euphemism for masturbation. To, what? Yonkers. You're gonna tell your roommate that you're just gonna go quietly nip out to Yonkers for a bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna, gonna take a trip to Yonkers. <laughs> That's... You're really... I'm, you're not allowed to name things anymore. You're gonna play we the got... flesh fiddle. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You've named our fans the fatties. You're suggesting that they all go yonker themselves. <laughs> fatties? Out of you. If you support the word fatties and you identify as a fatty, please let us know via our social media accounts. <laughs> By vigorously yonkersing in our direction. <laughs> <laughs> disgusting. You're disgusting. <laughs> but he he eventually went into the field of synthetic resins to make money. He didn't feel a particular burning passion for synthetic resin. He didn't yonker himself to the thought of synthetic resins. Really? Uh, because no. that's all that all that can help me. <laughs> you just lie awake at night thinking of resin. Oh, um, don't say it again. I, too I much. never will. I will go to my grave <laughs> without saying those words again. Those words are going to get sent to me as out of context quotes, and I'm going to be really confused in about a week and a half. Yeah. Hey, fatties, take pictures of your favorite resin objects and send them to Janelle. I will cash out my student loans to have all of you killed. Just fill up that old spank bank. If my fucking Wikipedia page reads Janelle Como, accidental founder of weird porn genre, <laughs> I will desecrate your grave. Fatties, uh, get on Wikipedia. <laughs> Do not. Do not. Make, make Janelle a Wikipedia page, then desecrate it. <laughs> I just hate you so much. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Um, I love you too. You do not. Uh, <laughs> so Leo Bakeland held a hundred pa patents at the time of his death, and he had more money than God. Leo Bakeland, incidentally, was also a huge fan of eugenics, and he gave lectures at prominent universities on the importance of preventing the, quote, promiscuous breeding of, another quote, the unfit degenerates, criminals, and the insane. Wow. So See, he dabbled. <laughs> no, it turns out we never had standards on the degree to which we will let famous rich people talk about shit they have no education in. He's the Jenny McCarthy of his day. I was gonna say, back then it was forcibly sterilizing the poor, today it's shoving a piece of jade up your vag. So, you mm -hmm. know, progress. Progress. <laughs> At least the jade probably won't kill you, or anybody else. No, it's jade not good for is you. Do not put... to become the eugenics of the future. Do not put jade in your vagina. Don't. Don't. I it's not as bad as eugenics, but it's still bad. No jade in your vag, and don't eat lead. I stand by that. Medical advice from Fat French and Fabulous. Don't do it. Don't do it. Like many inventors, Leo Bakelin came to regret giving the world backlight, incidentally. Mm. He was horrified by the amount of plastic pollution that he caused and how commonplace litter became after the invention of backlight. And he was also kind of tipped over the edge by the fact that backlight was used to construct the atomic bombs dropped over Japan. So... That was the sound they made. 
Oh no! <laughs> I can't just do those things. And now we pause for a 20 minute audio rendition of Crystal Knocked, brought to you by Jessica. I've been working on it for years. It's my Ugh. magnum opus. It's an actual hate crime. <laughs> it se- I've been banned from the state of Israel just for thinking it. <laughs> oh my god. Um, Leo Bakeland also went bugfuck crazy in his old age, much like Jessica has achieved at the age of 27. I'm, 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 I'm a prodigy. <laughs> ahead of your time. <laughs> in his old age, Leo became a recluse and started eating all of his meals out of cans. Mmm. Good stuff. He also became completely obsessed with growing a fucking tropical jungle at his estate in Florida, and he died in a mental asylum in New York City at the age of 80. Wow. Hashtag goals. Right. Um, backlight jewelry is actually still a very sought-after thing, and it actually is pretty expensive. And a fun fact that I learned while researching this episode, if you want to tell if backlight jewelry is genuine, scratch and sniff it. It should smell hmm. faintly of formaldehyde. Wow. How do I know what formaldehyde smells like? You know what formaldehyde smells like. I mean, we, but how does the average listener on the street know what formaldehyde smells like? Did you never have to cut up a animal of some sort in high school biology? I didn't go to high school. That's right. Well, the rest of us who went to high school were forced to dismember something for science. Mm, true. So... I just did it for fun. <laughs> oh, good. I had to cut up a rat with a pair of scissors, and I still smell it in my nightmares. <laughs> Lingers for days. We had we had uh, the rat dissection, the period before gymnastics classes, which oh. were mandatory at my high school for reasons known I'd only give. to child... Oh, yeah, everybody threw up. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a festival it's of vomit. Too close together. <laughs> it, was, it was like, all right, I kids. I barely handle going up the stairs after eating. That's too much. Everybody put the rat kidneys in the bucket and head on to do some cartwheels. <laughs> I went to a weird school. Weird. <laughs> That's weird. Leo's fortune made all of his heirs wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. Brooks stated that he had fuck you money. So he was basically so wealthy that he never had to appease or impress anybody in his entire life if he didn't want to. He actually wasn't required to do anything in life if he didn't want to. He just spent most of his life looking for ways to alleviate his boredom. So this probably shouldn't come as much of a shock, but Brooks was kind of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've gone 27 years just being basically neurologically incapable of telling when people are trying to censure my behavior. And it's done wonders for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so Brooks being kind of an asshole is going to be a running theme throughout this episode. I actually don't know if Brooks is still alive. I suspect he's not. He would be incredibly old by now. But I stand by my words. Brooks kind of an asshole. Mm. So, Brooks, Barbara's husband, eventual husband, was one of those people who believed that he was capable of great things if he only tried, which he never did. Good stuff. Yeah, he often lamented that he wished he had been Leo's son instead of his grandson, because he sort of had this vision that he and Leo could have taken the world by storm. Despite the fact that, like, Leo was an accomplished chemist with a PhD and he was a failed pilot. He said, and I quote, in this book, when he knew that he was being interviewed... 
I was always successful in everything I wished to do, but I despised success. I despised money and show. I laughed, a grave offense to those who cannot laugh. I thumbed my nose at my father and at the sheepism of man. Subconsciously he knew that I derided all that he did not dare to not to be. I was not only a black sheep, but far, far worse. I was a laughing black sheep who made him doubt his money god. So wow. you already don't, he's already unbearable to be around. And uh, that is a he's quote already that he an gave. insufferable little snot. Like, please tell me he was 12 when he said that. No, he said this is a grown man while being interviewed for a book about how his wife got murdered by their own child. Yeah, I just, I just don't like being successful. That's why I haven't done anything with my life. I yeah, bite my you. thumb at the capitalism. Like, <laughs> it's very like thirteen-year-old edge lord. Yeah, this is something that an obnoxious middle school kid would say on a YouTube video now. Yeah, like this is very much like this is my symbolic violence unto you, which is a reference no one will get except the people who do. <laughs> I I understood that reference. <laughs> That is a line that was, I have to explain this now, but this was, I hate that you made me remember this, god damn it, Jessica. So many nights trying to forget. I held a party at my apartment after uh, everyone, we were at a, a debate event and because debate people are lit, we got kicked out of a hotel for reasons that had something to do with noise and something to do with cocaine. Mm. And I was like, all right. A combination of the two. Maybe, yes. <laughs> Not entirely uh, causal, but partially. Yeah, a little bit. And I was like, what should I do with a bunch of loud people who have cocaine in them? I should bring them back to my house. Absolutely. And then a strange man that nobody wanted there decided to fling wine from one end of my house to the other. Just a random while... dude from Idaho. Yeah, which, again, this party was held in Edmonton, Alberta. I don't know how... <laughs> we don't even know how he got there. <laughs> I don't know, but he was very convinced that the government was hiding the secret of how to make water, which is a thing that you can, you know, if you've ever lit a hydrogen balloon on fire, congratulations, mm. you've cracked the code. Um, <laughs> but he flung wine into every crevice of my home, ruined several white upholstered chairs, and then he passed out in the corner and, I guess, in a fugue state, wrote me a poem that was signed, This is my symbolic violence unto you. And to this day, I'm never quite sure if that was supposed to be a threat, an apology, or a promise. I don't know. <laughs> Do you still have it? Of course I still have it. It's haunting. In case, in case the police need it someday. <laughs> Just in case he ever ends up on the evening news, you'll be ready. I'm going to sell it to a news agency. <laughs> I'm going to make so much money. I'm going to pay off my student loans with a violent poem some dude once wrote on the back of a grocery list. Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, oh man, I worked so hard to forget that. I hadn't thought about that in months. Again, and now it's back. Eidetic memory. I'm not capable of forgetting. I hate every inch of your weird body. <laughs> So it's, again, worth noting that Brooks never really achieved or did anything in his life. He was, the, throughout the book, he's full of talk like this, which basically amounts to, like, a grown man just saying, fuck you, my haters make me famous. <laughs> That's all that this is. In the, literal, in the literal context of a murder involving his son and his wife. Yeah, so after Barbara and Brooks started dating, Barbara decided she needed to lock that shit down, so yeah. she faked a pregnancy to get Brooks to marry her. Smart. Which That's he how did. it's done, ladies. That's healthy. That's how it's That's done. That's healthy. It's you a good fake start a to a relationship. 
I can't think that's of That's what single... makes a marriage strong. Yeah, I can't think of a single toxic lies. fucked up marriage that started on lies and a fake pregnancy. That's mm. surefire. Don't have things in common. Just be fertile and willing to lie about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's healthy. So, on the marriage license, Brooks listed himself as a writer and Barbara listed herself as a painter, despite mm. the fact that the two of them never produced any significant writing or painting. Wow. Rich yeah. people are fascinating. They are fascinating. So, the two of them bought a luxury apartment on the Upper East Side. On 74th Street and Lexington Avenue, you can stand outside it like a weirdo. <laughs> um, Gawk. It's nice. <laughs> Peasant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look up onto your masters. That's all people. That's all. That's all poor people did back in the day before there was television. They uh, they they followed horrifying crimes and they got to the rich. <laughs> it's fun to stand on the street and look up at people who are rich enough to hunt you for sport. <laughs> it's like it's like seeing a tiger in the wild. It's like you know that this thing can kill you without any consequence, and yet it does not because it is it's too the... indolent and lazy. I, I go to the Upper East Side the way other people skydive. I just want to taste the danger. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like sticking your arm through the, the bars at the zoo. I'm chubby and slow. I'm like the ideal first kill for their children. <laughs> <laughs> They're already marking you out for sport. Excellent. Samantha will be ever so pleased. She's been asking and asking to kill a white one. <laughs> No! Oh my god, that's your third hate crime of the podcast. You're cut off. I've almost, I've almost got a bingo. I'm the training wheels of the most dangerous game. That's excellent. <laughs> so, Barbara, although she didn't really achieve much on her own, she liked to hold salons. She fancied herself... She liked the salons of Renaissance France. Um, mm, she the thought of herself as an enlightenment figure. Interesting. She just wanted to invite famous writers and artists over to her house. She just wants to hang with some famous people. She did. She routinely hung out with Greta Garbo, Tennessee Williams, and William Styron, the author of Sophie's Choice. Hmm. Those were her buds. I mean, if you have the money to pay famous people to hang out with you, why not? You can buy nice friends. Yeah, you don't even have to be interesting when you're that rich. You can just buy cool friends. Oh, and Barbara wasn't particularly uh, pleasant. The marriage appeared perfect from the outside because they were both young and almost stupidly attractive, and they were rich and they ran in high society, but they were a complete mess behind closed doors. I'm shocked. Barbara was a depressed, mentally ill alcoholic for most of her life who frequently had rude outbursts in public, and throughout their marriage, both Brooks and Barbara had a colorful variety of extramarital affairs. So yeah, apparently marrying a pretentious millionaire you barely know isn't the key to eternal happiness. <gasps> Weird. Don't, don't spoil my dreams. <laughs> so on August 28th, 1946, Barbara gave birth to the couple's only son, a boy named Antony. Antony was incredibly good-looking, like both of his parents. Um... He was a redhead like his mother because it only was he makes like sense. a really good looking baby, just a very just attractive a hot child. Infant. Just if you a look up Anthony Bacon, sexy, sexy child. Well, the weird thing is that like even though Anthony lived to be twenty six, uh, the most popular photo of him, uh, the most famous photo, if you Google Anthony Bacon or Tony Bakeland, the photo that comes up is a photo that his mother took of him at age twelve in the bathtub. Oh, oh no! Where he's like crossing his legs like basic instinct style and looking coyly up at the camera the whole thing is oh, weird. Every, oh. 
every part of this story is weird. That is just that is just an age where your mother should not be looking at you in the bath. I didn't want my mother speaking to me at age 12. Yeah, just, uh. My whole reason for existing was to come home, slam the door, shriek that nobody understood me, and stop up to my room to listen to Bowling for Soup. As it that should was, be. That is an appropriate family dynamic. This is Folger's commercial creepy. <laughs> It's it's pretty bad. It's it, at this age having a healthy disdain for your parents is sort of normal. Mm-hmm. Letting your mother take nude photos of you in the bathtub is not deeply weird. Um, a family friend described Anthony, who went by Tony for most of his life, as quote an Adonis, which is again it's oh. weird. That is he, the wrong word. I don't know what the right word to describe the attractiveness not of that. a young boy, but it's not that. I mean, this whole family was almost like. Good looking to the point of being unearthly, but not. I mean, spoiler alert: Tony only lived to be twenty six years old. So, or uh, he only lived to be in. Uh, no, he lived to be his early thirties. But he, um, most of the friends that he made, were made as a teenager. So most people are describing his fetching good looks while he's sixteen. Oh, oh no. Yeah. No sixteen year old is attractive. No one who is finds a 16-year-old attractive is fine. Not even 16-year-olds who find ex- other 16-year-olds attractive are fine. Oh, it's 16 just acne is, and self-loathing. Yeah, like, when you're 16, all you are is a swamp of hormones and shame. <laughs> and if you find that hot, you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time at age 16 wearing pigtails and raccoon eyeliner because I thought mm. I was fucking Harlequin. It was a good look. Um, <laughs> Tony was a painter and a poet. and When he was I was 12, I looked exactly the same as I do now. I assume that you weren't born. I think you were just decanted <laughs> in your current state. I, I sprung fully formed from my mother's head. <laughs> Rose up out of the sea. Yeah. Tony was said to be a promising painter and poet. He studied at an art school in New York City as a young man and was described throughout his life as gentle, kind, witty, shy, bright, serious, and good with animals. So everybody wanted to fuck him. Everybody. Everybody. They really mm. wanted to get hit that. They wanted yeah. to hit it like a Mack truck. <laughs> Bang him like a screen door in a hurricane. None of this is okay. Tony, None as we've hinted it. at had a weird fucking relationship with his parents, in particular his mother. So Although, weird. Brooks was not out of the woods. Tony had a pronounced stutter throughout his life, but especially as a child. And since his father didn't trust mental health professionals, his father decided that the best way to cure Tony's stutter was by forcing young Tony, at around the age of nine, to read the writings of Marquis de Sade out loud at dinner parties. Oh, good. Which is a pretty oh. fucked up way to entertain your guests and a pretty good way to fuck up your child. Yeah, I'm just gonna have my young prepubescent son talk about feeding young people shit and whipping them. Yeah, oh, this is good. why. This is what like this is what happens when you have too much money and not an you you know you no not longer have to think about <laughs> survival or you know when everything becomes boring to you because you can have it all you have to get entertainment by having a child read sadistic descriptions of sexual sadism at the dinner table. This is like the decline of Dorian Gray in the picture of Dorian Gl- Gray on steroids. And in a much slower timescale, without an evil painting involved. It's a gentle step down from The Purge. Wow. In terms of rich people entertainment. 
But um, also, while Tony was a talented painter, his paintings tended to freak people out. Mm, just subtly wrong, like he was an abused child. Well, they're not really subtle. He liked to paint grotesque pictures of his mother being decapitated. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> or, or he painted her with snakes wrapped around her throat. Huh. Um, they hung these paintings up in their living room. Oh, did they? Yeah, in the apparently in the Bakelands NYC apartment, there was just casually p- paintings of his decapitated mother in the living room. Barbara hung them up. Because that's, uh, that's a healthy parent-child dynamic. I mean, she was proud of his art. She was encouraging his creativity. <laughs> when I was mad at my mom once at the age of 16, I called her Elizabeth instead of mom, and I think that's the most wow. fucked up... That's the that's the most warped our relationship ever came. That was the that was the most extreme line I ever crossed. I never went up to my room and painstakingly painted her being strangled by an actual snake. I hope not. I mean, like. And then she didn't then praise that painting and hang it up. Really? Because that's that's a bit harsh, Elizabeth. I mean, your daughter just wants <laughs> she just wants your love. She's just doing it for attention. You need to give her that attention. <laughs> Or she'll grow up to be a podcaster. Ah! I'm not exactly the poster child for, like, weird relationships with your parents. But, like, my 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 relationship with my mom is kind of weird. In that, like, she frequently makes jokes about, like, tricking me into saying I do. And then when I do, she says, ha ha, maweed. Um, <laughs> which is, like, well... kind of strange, but, like... Almost innocent compared to this. <laughs> when you start painting pictures of her corpse and putting them on the fridge, then we're going to have a serious conversation. Yeah, I just drew um, birds. That's it's, it's better. It's better. I mean, the birds were strangling my mother, but like, I don't know. <laughs> There's always a catch with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Barbara and Tony were pretty much obsessed with each other, and they had an enmeshed, codependent relationship that was much more intense and much more strange than any typical mother-son relationship. Tony was basically Barbara's favorite topic of conversation, and she just frequently boasted about how talented and how handsome he was, and she talked endlessly about his life and all the things that he liked. So when Tony was 21, his parents finally separated, and Tony stayed with his mother, eventually moving to a rented flat in London. She decorated the flat with an enormous portrait of Tony that she'd had commissioned, which hung directly in the main foyer and was permanently lit. Apparently, some people found it a bit much. <laughs> just, it's just a tad over the top. <laughs> Apparently, like, multiple people mentioned this throughout the book, but they were like, it was not the kind of painting a mother would have commissioned of her son. <laughs> like, it was, it was just too much. It's just, it's just too much. Well... A mother, a mother is a boy's best friend. But from 1954 onwards, the Bakelands decided to live a quasi-nomadic lifestyle because they had no responsibilities whatsoever, and Tony just sort of grew up all over the world. So they kept their home base in New York City, but they rented homes uh, all yes, over Europe. Ah, yes, that's what he needs. Instability. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. No, no set fixtures, no responsibilities. No roots. None of that. Absolutely not. Neither of them had anything better to do except for travel and sink deeper into their toxic marriage and have extramarital affairs and fuck up their son psychologically. Uh, in 1960, they were sort of a hobby. It's good to have hobbies. Mm. In 1960, they sort of relocated their home base to Paris. So while they were throwing their, their a party at their Paris apartment, Brooks met and began an affair with the daughter of an English diplomat who was a full 15 years younger than him. Um, this wasn't his Gar- first affair. 
even by a long shot. This was not even close to his first affair. But this was the first time he asked Barbara for a divorce that he could be with this woman. Um, Barbara immediately attempted suicide, so Brooks broke up with the mistress. Uh, In 1967, the family was now based out of Switzerland and partially in the resort town of Cadox in Spain. At this point, Tony was 20 years old, and this is the year that he met and fell in love with Jake Cooper, a bisexual man from Australia. Oops. As one does on vacation. Because it turns out that Tony the Wonder Child was gay. Whoops. This, this, is, this was a bit of an issue in 1967. I think so, all of us had our first sexual awakening meeting a bisexual Australian man named Jake Cooper. I think the first time I ever interacted with a real-life Australian was in Banff, when I was staying at the uh, the Banff Colony for Artists, up, up on the mountain there. And uh, we'd gone into town to go to... Everyone who works in Banff is Australian. They're all in, like, a work... Um, mm-hmm. th- they're kind of on a work vacation. They come over, they work, they ski. And um, I had gone to the Banff Hot Springs, and I was probably the most high I've ever been in my entire life. I spent many minutes in a boot closet thinking, these are not hot springs, these are boots. <laughs> and it's honestly incredible that I didn't drown. So my first interaction with a real life Australian- I don't think you can drown in boots, Janelle. You can drown in the hot springs, I tried. Um, but in the cab on the way back, we had an Australian cab driver. So my first interaction with an Australian was when I was desperately high hanging my head out the window because I was trying to, like, come back into my own body while an aggressively Australian man screamed at the front from the front seat, G'day, mates! You having a good time in Banff? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was... Beautiful, it, beautiful, beautiful accent. So Get them away thrilling. from me. Just screamed it at me. It was like having Steve Irwin drive me home in the middle of a drug trip. <laughs> and here we have your basic white girl. <laughs> Don't get too close, they're feisty. (laughs) (laughs) This is a beaut. (laughs) Oh, this one's at least a five foot one. (laughs) I would have fought him, but I wasn't entirely convinced that I was three dimensional. Um, (laughs) See, I've never met anyone from Australia, but I have met several people from New Zealand, and they're basically like diet Australians. If you say that to their faces, they will have you killed. That's probably the most controversial thing you've said on this podcast, and there is a crystal knocked joke <laughs> 20 minutes back. So, the problem with Jake wasn't only that he got Tony into butt stuff, he also got Tony into drugs, and the two of them habitually traveled to Morocco to acquire these drugs, because I guess when you're rich, you like your drugs nice and fresh. Mm. Fresh drugs. Just a- organic, non-GMO, 100%. Free-range drugs. Free-range drugs. Mm. Um, Brooks in particular could not accept having a gay drug addict for a son, and he began referring to Tony as Barbara's son rather than our son. Wow, and the relationship, Yeah, the relationship between Tony and Brooks never really improved, as we'll find out. But Barbara, on the other hand, took things to the next level, because she was not okay with having a gay son either. Yeah, Barbara, Barbara doesn't know how to stay on level one. Barbara doesn't know how to go stay on level two. Barbara goes all right, right to the to penthouse. The top. <laughs> right to the penthouse. Barbara is that elevator from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that bursts out of the ceiling and goes straight into the right sky. Right into space. <laughs> yeah. Barbara's that, a space that's elevator. That's who Barbara is in terms of drama. Yeah. So while Tony was hanging out with Jake in Spain, 
Barbara was told that Tony and Jake were more than friends, and so she hopped in her car and drove from Switzerland to Spain with the intention of bringing Tony back home. They got stopped at the French border, however, when it was realized that Tony didn't have his passport, which you needed to travel through Europe in those days. Yeah. You kids who don't remember the Eurozone. Mm-hmm. Um, both Barbara and Tony were arrested and tossed in jail. But Barbara wasn't even close to done being insane, so she began hiring escorts to fuckers. She had not yet begun to be insane. Oh no, she's just getting warmed up. She started hiring escorts to fuck her son in the hopes that they would turn him straight. That's how it works. Like a good mom. Mm. Like a good mom. Some some moms pay for piano lessons, she paid for hookers. (laughs) Apparently as many as one a day. She was like, you fuck those hookers and you think about what you did. Um, Barbara also liked to rent large castles in Italy and Spain to throw big, lavish parties and invite members of the local nobility who had suitably aged daughters in the hope that one of those daughters would just fuck the gay right out of her son. But, so, Barbara was thrilled when Tony invited a woman named Sylvie, who was a couple of years older than him and was a close friend, to come stay in Cadax with the family. Tony very much seems to consider Sylvie to be his first girlfriend and his first real love but uh sylvie later claimed that they were never romantically involved and that they were only friends Uh, tony definitely wrote about her at at the time and definitely referred to her as his girlfriend um a friend described tony bringing sylvie home to barbara as quote he brought her home like a kitten bringing its first killed mouse and laid it at her feet look mother i have a woman a human woman to spend time with me Oh, oh Barbara! Proud of me, mother. Barbara was stoked, so Barbara was super excited. And when Barbara first met Sylvie, she took the young woman aside and begged her to seduce and fuck her son. Oh, good. That's that's, that's not the converse. I've had some weird conversations wow. with my boyfriend's mothers, but that's a first. That is a, that is a step beyond. Mostly, they just ask me if I'm okay, while their eyes say, "Run, run, <laughs> Janelle. It's not too late. You're better than him." <laughs> They're just looking at you going, you can leave. <laughs> Anytime Why? you want to. You can leave. <laughs> He's terrible. <laughs> I literally gave birth to this, this, and you, you can leave. I hate it. <laughs> Stop dating my womb tumor. <laughs> no, that's the best euphemism you've come up with yet. <laughs> All my ex-boyfriends are womb tumors. <laughs> Sticking to that. So Sylvie, on her part, seemed a little freaked out by being taken aside and encouraged strongly to have sex with Tony. But in any case, Sylvie wasn't very good at following Barbara's instructions because she promptly ended up leaving Tony so she could go date his own father, Brooks. Wow. Yeah, she she ended up with Brooks. Just straight for the only heterosexual on the premise. (laughs) Absolutely. And she says that Tony resented her terribly for this. No kidding, you're fucking his dad. Yeah. Like, even so, if you're just his friend, that's weird. It's weird. Um, so this family is a lot. A it's, lot. It's, it's so much, and it's we're a, so not. so much. We're not even done. We're not even close. So Barbara once commented to Brooks that she knew she could cure their son's homosexuality if she could only get him into bed with her. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh. Those are words that came out of a mother's mouth. Mm. Um. Brooke's response, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? 
You can't <laughs> fuck your own son. Don't. What is wrong with you? Absolutely um, not. But that wasn't enough to deter her because throughout the last years of her life, Barbara confided to multiple people in vague and explicit terms that she had sex with her own son to cure his homosexuality. This is a thing a woman thought one thought was a good idea, but also told people about. Yeah, she said they did some drugs together and then had sex with each other in their apartment. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, I just, setting incest aside, and don't worry, we'll pick that right back Oh, we're picking it up again again. Oh, yeah. We're picking it up and we're running with it. Uh, Just like Barbara (laughs) did. Like a, like a... I don't, like, whoever runs with the ball in football. I don't really understand sports. It's um, like a football made of your son's penis <laughs> that you're having sex with. It's, it's, it's very Freudian. It gets very Freudian. Um, it's not even Freudian. Like, it's just having sex with your child. Yeah, like, this isn't, this isn't, like, at least Freud was just, like, this is, like, the secret underbelly of what people, just, this is just explicit. This isn't subtext well, at all. But the like, thing is, is that Freud believed that, like, having sex with your parent was, like, th- your ultimate desire and the thing that you wanted more than anything, when in reality, being forced to have sex with your parent while under the influence of drugs will just break you as a human. Yeah, it'll just fracture you mentally. Uh, it, but, like, I like the arrogance here of just being, like, clearly none of, the, all, like, none of these, like, my, my son, despite- These the, hussies are not good enough. These hussies are not good enough for my son. None of them are f- truly turning him from the path of dick. I know he needs a better woman. A superior woman. Me. <laughs> the only vag that will do. Well, I mean, he was in it once. That's vile. You, you go to the corner. You stand <laughs> in your corner and you think about what you just said. Um... In fairness, Brooks was in a bit of a glass house here. In Savage Grace, he d- I didn't have time to get anything into Brooks's paternal grandmother because that is a whole episode unto itself of just weirdness. But Brooks idolized his paternal grandmother, Leo's wife, saying, and I directly fucking quote, she was attracted to me not only as a mother, but as any woman is to an electric young man. We were like lovers. We met oh. always as man and woman. That was our power. Oh. It enabled us to see instantly to the heart of things together. I was for my grandmother, the surrogate, for the missing, vanished, voyaging, discoursing Leo Hendrick Bakeland. I was the young Leo she had loved. He, Odysseus, was gone. I was Telemachus. Even as a young man, I was aware of the sexual danger of that transference. Uh, to paraphrase, wow, what a guilt. I'm a, I'm a fuck my grandma, is what, what that means. Guilt. What a guilt. Why? Why? Nobody wants to be Telemachus and if they're okay. No. 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 That is not something to admire. Those are words that came out of his mouth. That's <laughs> I I wish I he could wrote have listened poetry to how much he wanted to bang his grandma. And how much she wanted to bang him in return. Tension. Just that sizzle. He wanted to have sex with his elderly Flemish grandma. Mm. And I don't Don't we I, all I wish I could have heard dinner conversation <laughs> at the Bakeland house. Like, just... Wow. There's, like, this thing in psychology where, like, once... you know, More money will make you happier until you reach a salary in today's dollars of about $75,000 a year. And after that's that... That's the in, cutoff. It quickly... That's the cutoff. 
Yeah, it quickly just, It has like, diminishing returns there. after that. It's diminishing returns. Like, making significantly more than $75,000 a year will not make you happier because it comes no. with more problems. And, like, at that point, you're living a comfortable... You're financially stable at that point, and having owning additional shit or fancier houses will not make you happy. Yeah. It won't fill the dark void that lives inside you. Um, but you, I feel you like You already there's... have all the money you, ne- you, you need to just do whatever the hell you want. Like, within reason. But I feel like there should be a second income bracket where after you no longer are a human, you're just a soulless void, devoid of all empathy. And the only things that bring you literal vampire, the only things that can entertain you in this world that holds no challenge are incest and murder. Yeah, that's all there is left for you. And these people were well past that threshold. Just wild eyes wide shut sex parties is the only thing that can even get past the 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 resin facade like the thick spiny exterior that is your boredom with the world <laughs> you're just you are literally jaded you are covered in jade yeah i mean once once you can have any car any vacation any house that you want all there is left is just having sex with a first degree relative on the kitchen table mm-hmm. that's all the world has for you that's the only excitement you have in life really it's the rich we should pity <laughs> I don't, or we should probably eat them before they eat us first. Mm, Um, It's almost merciful. And so tender. (laughs) Only if you cook them a long time. Mm. Mm, The the rich are too lean to be tender. Really? I like a little bit of fat. Makes better to Mm. slow cook them. Yeah, eat the middle class. Falls off the (laughs) bone. Where, like, they just have just enough money to, like, make, like, to have, like, appropriate calories, but not enough money to just, like, like, have, like, eight personal trainers. You're gonna have a chart next week of income versus deliciousness, and I'm gonna have you committed. (laughs) It will be scientifically accurate. I will report you. I will do my studies. All right. So, Barbara took classes, writing classes at the New School in New York for a while, and the subject matter of her writing was explicit mother-son incest. Wow. Interesting. Bit of an obsession there, Barb. A former classmate of hers recalled being invited back to Barbara's apartment for drinks after class one day and said that as soon as she saw the weirdly intimate photographs of Barbara's son hanging up around the apartment, she got the sense that the writings were autobiographical. Oh, yeah. Oh, because yeah, you, you know, if you've ever been part of a writing group, there's always one person where you're just like, hmm... This You're not is fine. a little too detailed. <laughs> you need to stop. This you is, have this a is... very strange fetish that you're trying to pass off as literature. <laughs> we're, we're peering right down the rabbit hole, and I'm not fine. You know, Barbara just goatseed her heart to this poor woman, and wow. That is the worst thing you've said. <laughs> it's just, it this keeps going up. This a rapid escalation. <laughs> this is... There's like there's got to be a law of diminishing returns on your <laughs> horrificness. We're just eventually. We haven't reached it so far. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure this is an exponential curve, and I'm just gonna rocket off into the horizon. At, at some point, though, you've got to like reach a point where all your jokes are so horrific that they just blend into each other. You're just into one world wordless scream. Yeah. You're you're gonna make a joke about Sudanese child soldiers, and I'm just not even gonna react. You're not gonna flinch. Yep. I I'm made several inside. gilf jokes, and you didn't even say anything. I worry. I was, I was, <laughs> I was looking up phone numbers that will come in handy later. It's for the best. Don't struggle when they come for you. 
but I managed to sneak in a pointless use of my psych degree here. The reason that you find mother-son incest or father-grandma incest or brother-sister incest so inherently off-putting is due to something in the human species called the Westermark effect. So in humans, if two people live in the same household for an extended period of time while one or both of those people is a child, in normal circumstances, when you are not a rich, bored heir to a plastics empire, those people become permanently desensitized to sexual attraction to each other. It becomes impossible for them to feel sexual attraction. Yeah, like, the reason why you do not experience sexual attraction to your relatives is not genetic. It is entirely, like, it is entirely a social thing, like, where, like, well, I mean, like, it's not because, like, you recognize them as genetically related to, it's entirely due to, like, imprinting early in life. Like, so if you get raised with a, a completely unrelated individuals such as a step-sibling you won't be attracted to them in normal circumstances if you're raised together yeah step-siblings and foster siblings don't feel attraction to each other same thing um which kind of pokes a hole in the like disturbingly popular step-sibling incest porn genre Mm. yeah just because they're step-siblings doesn't make it less weird just so you know (laughs) it's still gonna feel like fucking your brother yep um no difference this obviously applies like there's people who go above and beyond with their depravity and completely just hurdle over that westermark effect like it's a fucking low fence but you know like um, it's a slip and slide you can even see this in cultures that practice communal child rearing because there are very Mm -hmm. very few marriages in those cultures between children raised together Mm -hmm. honestly the westermark effect is what keep our keeps our species alive because there's something called genetic sexual attraction. Mm-hmm. You are more inclined to be attracted to people who look like you. And the Westermark effect is pretty much the only thing that keeps our species from declining into an incestual, chinless mess. Yeah, like, basically, like, you're more likely to be attracted to somebody who's more likely to be genetically compatible with you enough to raise offspring. And the closer you are to someone genetically, up until a certain point, the higher their your fertility is. Um, That certain point, though, is, like, roughly at the repeat cousin level well and the problem is is that like your brain doesn't have an inherent understanding of genetics you just know that you like people who are similar to you which means if not for the westermark effect your ideal spouse is your sibling absolutely vomit my sister very attractive i'm gonna pretend i didn't hear we're almost identical it doesn't even register i look in the mirror every day and i'm just like You've said so many things that having doppelganger sex with your own sister is just failing to make an impression on me. You're so desensitized. It's amazing. Is this what it's like to be wealthy? Oh my god. I just want to stab my neighbors. Um, <laughs> that was, uh, my walls are too thin for me to make that joke at 3.40 in the morning. Wow. Um, we previously discussed on the King Charles II episode what, happened when in, what happens when inbreeding goes unchecked. And it's likely that early families who did not experience the Westermark effect just kind of bred themselves out of existence. Um, incidentally, and this is gross, so again, I'm, I I don't apologize. You live in a horrifying world and you need to face reality. You opted um, into this. If you are this far into this episode, you, you knew what you were you, doing. You don't have a right to be offended anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this is why it's a terrible idea to raise siblings apart, because mm. they're... This is why there are constantly stories in the news of why siblings raised apart end up accidentally marrying each other. And it's also why we have to place caps on how many times one donor's sperm can be used in a single Mm -hmm. area. Because siblings raised apart, as we just mentioned, are at an increased risk of accidental incest due to genetic sexual attraction. 
Mm-hmm. Science. Is also one of the reasons why adultery is one of the reasons why adultery is highly frowned upon in most civilizations. If you know that you came from a sperm donor, probably don't date people who also came from sperm donors. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in February of 1968, be safe, kids. <laughs> uh, that normally that means use a condom, but in this case this it means wh- don't accidentally fuck your half siblings. Yeah, this is why this is why like areas with like high genetic incest coefficients like have apps for like figuring out how closely you are related you are to people you want to yeah. date. Iceland's dating scene is mm, rough. Rough. <laughs> so it's like you meet a nice girl and it turns out your second cousin's like five times. It's like, damn it. Yeah, if you want a hot Icelandic spouse, just move there. Everyone's so frustrated because they're all related. <laughs> fresh blood, fresh, fresh blood. blood. Fresh blood. You're the only um, one keeping them from flipper babies. Do do it when you must. <laughs> Throw yourself for the, for the good of Iceland, for the good of the nation. You stand between them and weird bleeding disorders. <laughs> Do it. Do it for the hemophiliacs that never were. So, in February of 1968, Barbara discovered that Brooks was having an affair with her son's girlfriend, and she attempted suicide again. Because, of course. Of course you did. That's kind of her go-to. You fake a pregnancy, or you try to kill yourself. Um, But this time... So cliche. Brooks decided he was tired of her goddamn shit, and he asked her for a divorce, so she attempted suicide again. Because this is a healthy marriage. Healthy. Healthy, healthy coping. Clearly you need to be together. Because <laughs> um, this isn't fucked up. Meant to be. D- Disney Disney princess ending. Mm. So, for that second suicide attempt, Forever she mixed... After. Happily? Oh. Hmm. I mean, no. Happy people do not mix vodka and nembutal, which is the drug they use to fucking execute people in the United States, mm. and then down that cocktail. Lovely. They used to give us some cr- out some crazy drugs back in the day. Yeah, you could just have drugs. Just mm. They the wouldn't world. even give me more than two weeks of Wellbutrin. The world was your behind the counter of a pharmacy. Like you could just go to go to the go to the store and like just like find one of those candy machines, put a quarter in, and just get like a pound of barbiturates. You just, just go to the doctor and be like, "I'm fat and itchy," and they're like, "Meth." Meth. Yes. Sounds like a sounds <laughs> like a good day for meth. <laughs> So Barbara phoned a friend while dying, famed novelist James Jones, and it was so he was so alarmed by her slurred speech on the phone that he rushed over and found her passed out on the carpet. He managed to get her to a hospital to get her stomach pumped, although she spent the next 24 hours in a coma before finally waking up. Mm. Um, when James phoned Brooks to tell him that Barbara was in a coma following a suicide attempt, Brooks said, quote, if she dies, you know where I am. <laughs> so that's a little cold. Wow. Wow. Healthy. Healthy. Yeah. Healthy. Um, then in 1969, Barbara met and fell in love with a famous art curator named Samuel Adams Green, a close friend of Andy Warhol. Huh. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Green did not think Tony- circles. Oh yeah, she ran all the best. You can buy nice friends. Mm. Um, so- Also, I feel like maybe, like, 60 people used to live in New York and they all hung out together. Mm-hmm. Just everybody knew each other back in the day. Today, the only people in New York that I know are, like, people I actively try to see every day and the janitor at my school who helps me drink in public. Mmm. Or sneaky. Yeah, she caught she caught me and my friends drinking out of Mike's Hard Lemonade bottles in the hallway because we were sad. Mm. And she was like, no drink! And then she came back. She's an elderly Polish woman. She came back with a bunch of um, solo cups that she'd procured from somewhere, and she was like, for sneaky. <laughs> 
and she's my personal hero, and uh, whatever they're paying too. her, they should triple it. Um, she should be on the. She should be on the masthead. <laughs> she's she all. Be, she's. She should the be heart and soul of that institution. Of Re- replace, replace. You know, you know the missing uh, sundial. Just replace it with a statue of her. That's all we need. Um, she's so, the true spirit of the institution. She keeps us going. For sneaky. For sneaky. <laughs> so, um, Samuel Adams Green did not think that Tony had any artistic talent at all, which is kind of fun. But after six weeks, Green got tired of Barbara's nonsense and broke off the affair. <laughs> because, of course, this is a lot of nonsense. It's a lot of nonsense. Industrial Barbara, quantities of nonsense. Oh, and she's about Barbara's going straight out the ceiling and into the space elevator. Because she was completely obsessed with him, and she refused to accept that the relationship was over. Mm. So when she, when she came back to New York that fall, she walked barefoot across Central Park in the snow, wearing absolutely nothing but a lynx fur coat, and then demanded to be let into his apartment. Which is, like, next, next level crazy. Wow. Today, walking across Central Park is a great way to, f- to find the answer to how many used syringes fit in a human foot. But, like, it's, it was, it's cold, like, that's a lot. And it's a long walk. It's a long walk. Even across the park, the short way is a long walk. Um, in the movie Savage Grace, the scene where, of the, the famous threesome that everybody puts up on the Tumblr. The Tumblr, because I'm old now. The gift sets. Yes. There's a scene where Barbara and Green have a threesome with Tony, and, like, this never happened. Nobody no. ever claimed that it happened. The filmmakers completely make this This is a up. complete fabrication. There's not even, like, a rumor of this. No, and it was a pretty bold claim to make about somebody who was still alive. Yeah, because he Probably was. Probably a short... He was, and he sued. Um, yeah, he sued, and he, he passed away before the lawsuit could be settled, but his estate settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. Which is probably a lot. Probably a lot. I'm guessing that's code for a lot. Mm. The movie also changes some of the names for some reason. So if you've only ever heard of this case through the movie, Blanca is Sylvie and Jake Martinez is Jake Cooper. I don't know why they made him Spanish, but okay. Um, But all of this leads us to the murder, which we're going to touch on. And then we're going to leave you hanging with the case of true crime blue balls. So we're like 12 feet down the rabbit hole and we haven't even gotten to this murder yet but in 1972 right before we can't the murder, even see the bottom we're just whistling down oh there's there's so much further to go um barbara and tony were living in a rented flat in cadigan square london which is pretty much the most expensive place a human can live on planet earth and they lived in a two-story sixth floor walk-up which should be fucking illegal oh i have seriously considered heads installing one of those, like, elderly people chair seats <laughs> to get to my fourth floor walk-up, so six is out of the question. Absolutely not. I'd live under the bridge. Um, I would sooner sleep on the sidewalk. Yeah, Barbara always had a very poetic way of speaking in a way that wasn't threatening and scrawled on the back of a grocery list and... Vaguely unsettling, like a child from a horror movie. Yeah, not not left floating in a puddle of wine on my coffee table the next morning. So she said, after moving to London, that London with its six times breathed over air seems a dream. I like the way she talks. Um, yeah, shame nice. shame that Poetic. she's about to die in a horrible murder. Mm. She, she claimed that Tony was incredibly fond of London. And at this point, Tony was 26 years old. And he had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies. 
not good, especially considering the combination of that and his raising. Yeah, all the drugs and incest probably didn't help, but, um... No. Tony had shown signs of schizophrenia from very early in his young adulthood, but Brooks refused to allow him to be treated because he believed psychiatry was, quote, immoral. Immoral? I mean, letting letting your wife linger in a coma while you're off having sex with your son's girlfriend? That's fine. That's Psychiatry, gotcha. though, straight to hell. Not a sinner in my house. My house that I share with my wife, who I do not love, who regularly attempts suicide and fucks our son while I just sort of <laughs> shrug and make a disgusted face, uh, where uh, I fondly canoodle with his girlfriend. Hallmark Hallmark doesn't really make a card for that one. It would be a little long. It's You're a little on your unwieldy. own. Just go for thinking of you. So, like all people who have toxic, too close, enmeshed relationships, Barbara and Tony had weird, intense arguments all the time. Constantly. Because when you have that few boundaries, you're always tripping over each other. Yeah, you are, and it's not a healthy recipe. And uh, Tony began threatening Barbara with knives on more than one occasion during their intense arguments. In July of 1972, Barbara was at a friend's house when Tony jumped out and grabbed her by the hair. He had strolled into the house because the doorman knew him and just went straight to mother murdering. So, I mean, she survives this incident, spoiler alert, but he started dragging her toward the street with the intention of murdering her by throwing her under a car. Bit unwieldy. The only reason Barbara survived the incident was because she hung onto a gate, which Tony was too weak to pry her from. (laughs) Because, ha, he lived in a plastic world. He'd gone soft. Weak. Barbara, uh, Tony tried to shake Barbara loose by slamming the gate repeatedly on her hand. Ooh. Yeah, he broke her thumb in three different places and ripped out a pretty substantial chunk of her hair, but Mm, she still didn't let go. Every person doesn't even have that much thumb to break. They're very short. No, I looked at it and I was like, you really gotta get your thumb breaking in. You gotta, Mm. you know, plan that. Like, at what point is there, like, no thumb left to break? At what point if it's just mashed or crushed? Can you just grind a human thumb bone into baby powder? Yeah. I mean, he tried. When Barbara refused to let go of the gate, he ran back into the house to grab a carving knife and ran back out screaming that any woman nearby was gonna get it. (laughs) Barbara only survived this incident, really, because her friend Sue Guinness showed up at that moment, the woman who owned the house, and Tony ran away. Not a man of his word, then. No. The police charged him with attempted- Insufficient follow-through. Yeah, Weak. Yes. This Commit. is what's wrong with rich youth. They have, Kids today. They expect everything no handed them on a through. silver platter, including murder. Just, they, they want their video games and their cell phones and their mother's decapitated heads. They just, they had everything too easy in life. And they think that you can just decapitate their mother whenever they like. It takes effort. It takes Spoiled. work, kids. Back in my work. day, we had to use an axe. There's a lot of tendons. Oh, my God. My mother is, in fact, sleeping in this room. Hmm. It's good. With one eye open. softly (laughs) boring as I caterwaul about mother murder. That's wonderful. Um, She'll have sweet dreams in which you attempt to strangle her with a live snake. (laughs) So the police arrested Brooks, or not Brooks, they arrested Tony for attempted murder because of course they did. Yeah. But Barbara... steadfastly refused to press charges at all. She was not going to cooperate. So Sue, the friend, contacted several doctors and successfully arranged for Tony to be committed to a mental hospital instead. Because somebody has to be sensible here. Yeah, Sue Guinness then contacted Brooks to let him know, like, hey, your son just tried to murder the shit out of your wife in broad daylight. 
To which Brooks replied, quote, It's all just fun and games. Wow. Yeah. I played a lot of games as a child. Wow. I played Red Rover and I played 7-Up, but I never played Try to Kill Your Mother by Throwing Her Into Traffic. I mean, it's not entirely dissimilar from Tag, is it? The Hocus Pocus? <laughs> Just you a little more... You put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, you put your left you foot in... You slam the shit out of your mother's... And you try to stab your mom. <laughs> <laughs> you slam the shit out of your mom's hand in a gate. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you do, the Hokey Pokey. <laughs> I remember that. It's coming back to me. Um, it's all coming back. Oh, grade school. Early so, days. Barbara should absolutely have pressed charges. Yeah. <laughs> As a result Hindsight of the incident... Hindsight being 2020. Yeah, have been so... A bad idea. After uh, after Tony got out of the mental hospital, he had to start seeing a psychiatrist named Dr. W. Lindsay Jacob, despite the fact that his father thought it was a crock of nonsense, 18 days before he successfully murdered his mother. Tony was seen... Tony had a psychiatric appointment, and after the appointment, Dr. Jacobs took Barbara aside after the session and said, your son is going to kill you. Uh, it's... Not so it can't be that much nonsense, then can it? <laughs> Barbara was a he's bit not on a the psychic, mellow- is he? <laughs> no, he's a psychiatrist. <laughs> they make slightly more money. Mm. Um, Barbara was a little bit on the melodramatic side, and she responded, "Quote: no. He's been murdering me since the day he was born. Whether for him or his father, I don't know. I'm used to murder." And the doctor was like, yeah, yeah, but actually, though, like, yeah. I, I think you're at risk. I'm not being Bar- poetic here. No, literally. <laughs> I think you're I think you're going to die. And Barbara replied, I don't. Um, so, you know, well, ter- well. Tarasov warning achieved, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't heated. Can't say she wasn't warned. Yeah. For those of you who aren't well versed in the professional ethics of psychologists, Psychologists and psychiatrists and other forms of mental health professionals have a duty to warn, Mm -hmm. which is mandated by something called a Tarasoff law. So if your client tells you that they are going to harm a specific person, you have a duty to break confidentiality and warn that person. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few cases in which you are required, well, you're even permitted to break the confidentiality of your patient. And you are required to. Failing to Mm -hmm. give a Tarasoff warning where it's it's warranted is a huge offense. You can be found... Very liable. And you can lose your license um, and face charges. It's not good. It's negligence. Mm. So the Tarasov laws are named, just to go on a complete true crime tangent, they're named after Tatiana Tarasov, a UC Berkeley student who was murdered in 1969 by a man she'd been casually dating. The man, named Prosenjit Podar, kind of went off the deep end because he'd been dating Tatiana and he told her that he considered the relationship very serious and heading Mm -hmm. toward marriage. And she didn't and she'd been dating other men. And she saw it as just a casual fling, so she broke things off. She got kind of freaked out. Potter told his psychologist that he was planning to stab her to death, and the psychologist had him committed to a hospital, but then he was released because he seemed rational, and then he ran out and killed Tarasov. So, if somebody tells their psychologist that they want to skin you and turn you into a reading lamp, you're going to hear about it. You get to hear about it. Yeah, someone's going to tell you. Either the psychologist directly, or more commonly, the psychologist is going to go to the police, and the police are going to give you an official warning. Um, but the thing about Tarasov laws is that they exist for a good reason, but they only work if you actually stay away from the person who wants to murder you. Yeah. <laughs> it's personal you if, like, if you're warned, like, hey, if you get too close to this person, they might strangle you with some snakes. 
And you just go like, I've been strangled with snakes. I know the pain. And like, you just sort of look, look consumptively out the window. Like, there's not a lot they can do after that point. You've been told. The duty is partially <laughs> on you to stay the fuck away. You gon' die. Two days before the murder, Barbara and Tony saw the psychiatrist again, and this time everyone agreed that Tony very much needed to be in the hospital now. Yes, now, right now. So Tony was scheduled to enter the hospital on November 20th, and he would have done so if he hadn't stabbed the shit out of his mother first. Whoops. So a friend, incidentally, Sue Guinness... Bit of a scheduling mishap. A little bit. Um, bit of a blipper. I hate it when I just mix up my schedule like that. Ah, uh, every time. It's hospital then matricide. God, I'm so bad at this. Idiot. Ah, uh, I got blood all over my shoes, and the hospital the hospital is gonna charge me five dollars for missing my appointment. <laughs> the worst. Um, so a friend, Sue Guinness, the woman who inter- mm-hmm. in- interrupted Tony's first attempt to murder his mother. Uh, saw the two of them two days before the murder on the the day that they went to the psychiatric appointment, and she reported that Tony had painted gold stars all over his shoes and clothes and was sitting in a corner rocking back and forth with his arms across his chest. Good sign. Healthy. That's not... Yeah, that's not what people do when they're okay. No. Um, very rarely. So, Sue warned Barbara to be careful, but she responded that Tony would never hurt her. He literally just did. Yeah, you're still your thumb's still in a your fucking thumb splint, is lady. Still broken in three <laughs> places. So Sue was obviously very it's skeptical of this. It's almost a pretzel. <laughs> Sue was obviously skeptical of this because she like literally witnessed him trying to murder her. Yeah, and took it a bit more seriously. <laughs> yeah, she'd also been a uh, witness to an incident where Tony barged into her house. Um, because Barbara would often go stay with Sue when Tony mm-hmm. was too much. Tony barged into the house, grabbed his mother's passport, tore it up, threw all of her stuff down the drain, and then threatened to murder her in front of a dinner party full of guests. Yeah, pretty. I, I remember that pretty vividly. That would take up a lot of mental hardware. That would be... I'm gonna click save on that one. Like. Yeah, it's gonna be like like a non-lossy file. We're going like full raw, like raw, not like... Not like a JPEG. <laughs> no compression. No compression. That's gonna remain vivid. And I mean, it turns out that Sue had reason to be worried, because as she would find out after the events of Friday, November the 17th, 1972, which we will get to in part two of this podcast. Yeah, so return next week, fatties. Oh my god, stop <laughs> Next week, we'll be back with matricide and a bonus attempted grandma-side. Wow. Well, you know what they say, what about grandmas? They're fucking stacked. I have broken you in a way that I don't think I can fix. (laughs) I'm not right. (laughs) If humans had a you-break-it-you-buy-it policy, you would live on my couch right now. Yeah, right on the shelf next to the, next to the, um, next to the plants. <laughs> you would cause my dog great distress. <laughs> what is this? Why is Bianca upset today? It's Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's some shining shit right there. Here's Jesse. <laughs> I have I have a slasher's grin, and my I've been told that my eyes, when looking into a flame, are absolutely glowing. I'm ready for stardom. Who's 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 giving you compliments while you stare unblinking into a candle? 
I don't think it was intended as a compliment. Oh. Uh, they said it shortly before taking my matches away, so. <laughs> it's good that you have some adult supervision some of the time. Yeah. People always are like, who gave you matches? And I'm like, I'm allowed to buy them, bitch. I'm an adult. <laughs> that's, that's not good. Technically, anyway. Legally. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we will be back next week with the thrilling conclusion of what happens when you fuck your adult son and feed him drugs and refuse to get him psychiatric help and that reaches its natural conclusion. Yay! Hooray! A cautionary tale. Followed by a secondary cautionary tale of what happens when you move an unmedicated schizophrenic into the home of a frail 80-something-year-old woman. Yay! Double feature. It's going to be some fun stuff, kids. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. So I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And I will not call you fatties because I love you. And you are my weird children who send me my own quotes and upset me during lunch. And we have been fat, (laughs) French, French, and fabulous. fabulous. Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please consider subscribing or recommending us to a friend. If you'd like to follow us and what we're up to, you can find us at Fat French Fab on Twitter, uh, me personally at I Am Not a Lungfish, Chanel at Very Bad Llama, or on Facebook at Fat, Fat French and Fabulous. See you next week.